Hello, welcome to Social Evolution, the podcast where we talk about the future of humanity and a bunch of related stuff. My name is Michael Porcelli. And my name is Max Borders. Today we're going to be talking about apocalyptic thinking and narratives. If you like what you hear from this conversation today, you're probably going to want to pick up Max's latest book, After Collapse, which he goes into at length about different kinds of collapse scenarios. And if you're optimistic about the future, particularly of business and organization, you've got to get linked up with Michael's meta-relating consultancy, Bedrock Culture and Leadership. These guys really are on the cutting edge of a full stack, if you like the metaphor, full stack uh, organizational theory from the way we relate to each other as human beings all the way the way the way we govern inside organizations. Thanks, Max. So... I'm excited about this topic because something I've become very much aware of in the past few years is almost like a very popular new subgenre of speculative nonfiction, I guess. Like people talking about collapse scenarios, you know, doomsday prepping, um, you know, environmental collapse or socioeconomic collapse or AI risk, like super intelligence explosion and this sort of thing. And I think especially after having just lived through and are still living through the global COVID pandemic, I think people are more maybe aware of the precariousness of civilization, right? Like there's, there's a way that maybe people sort of thought, you know, here we are and here we've been and it's just going to keep on working. And now, you know, with this scenario having happened within recent memory, I think people are more kind of concerned and even, even people that I know are taking steps and finding ways of prepping for the next big thing, you know, or maybe expecting, you know, this is just a, a whatever, a trial run for like the big one, whatever the big one is coming out there in the future. And Max, you threw your hat in the ring, so to speak into this genre when you decided to take on the whole topic with your book after collapse. And I think your book is a little different in some key ways than maybe this, the genre in general. I mean, the genre has got a lot of different players in there, but I want to hear from your point of view, if you could sum up, what is it that you're bringing to the table? What is it you're bringing to this conversation? That's maybe a little, a little different or maybe a little unexpected if people are, you know, fans of the genre. I think it's almost as if my book functions as sort of an antidote to, I mean, I do postulate a future collapse scenario. It's not an apocalyptic vision by any stretch of the imagination. It's, it's a more localized understanding of, of, of socioeconomic collapse. But I do buy into the idea of collapse uh, by virtue of certain, I guess you could call them vectors of inaction or change. And when those happen, uh, things get interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll be more to the point on this. Mm-hmm. After collapse is really, I do argue, particularly in the introduction and first couple of chapters, that there are a bunch of competing collapse narratives out there. There's no doubt about it. And that's what we're going to really spend the, the day talking about today on the show. Yep. But what I argue uh, and, and that, that what really what we're going to, how we're going to see collapse is that we're going to architect systems around our fears about other forms of collapse. And, and so in this way, our collapse becomes endogenous, as Jim Rutt calls it, and I think that's an apt term, 
uh, and and rather than exogenous. An ex, uh, exogenous collapse might be something like you know a meteor hitting the planet or or some sort of uh, existential threat that happens because a, a you know a coder you know wipes out the eastern seaboard and all of a sudden we're in the dark or there's a uh, electromagnetic pulse attack or whatever. These are all kinds of collapse scenarios that people have yeah. going on. Climate change is a big one. And we want to talk about these today, but what I'm going to argue is that our responses to these fears and anxieties are what architect the more fragile and, and indeed hierarchical um, structures of society that are going to make us more vulnerable to collapse scenarios. And that's, and, and indeed gives rise to collapse scenarios. And that's really the, the topic of the book after collapse in terms of the collapse narrative. But I do want to, um, I, I don't want to talk uh, too much about the book today, except to, you know, obviously to get people to pick it up and invite you to talk about when you think about an apocalypse or a vision of the end, what comes first to your mind? <laughs> well, um, I, I loved hearing about the different things that you think about, like the different co collapse scenarios. And I'm looking forward to kind of enumerating them. So I think there's some nerd in me that like loves to kind of enumerate these kinds of things. And I, I through the internet, I found other nerds who like to do this, you know, who are into, you know, long-term thinking or areas like effective altruism or think tanks like the Future of Humanity Institute. So I, I definitely think about all the other nerds who are thinking about that. But if I if I take a step back and and just think about my life, um this feeling of the impending end of the world has always been with me for as long as I can remember. And it was originally something that I experienced uh, at church. And, you know, certain sects of Christianity uh, focus on the end times quite a bit. And, uh, you know, there's like a lot of a lot of sermons out of the book of Revelation or a lot of like reading of the tea leaves. I mean, the book of Revelation, if you're familiar with it, or maybe if you're not familiar with it, is is really weird. It's it's like almost the most psychedelic book in the Bible. And everyone's sort of like trying to interpret it as like a prophecy of a future that has not happened yet, the end of the world prophecy. And so there's a lot of reading into it, like the symbols, like what does this mean? And what does that mean? And like, it's like, what would that look like in our world? And like, if you kind of go down this form of thinking, you can almost start to just create as like a, a, a near infinite amount of theories. Like, oh, this is that. And this is that. And that's why we're in the end times right now. Right. Like, da, 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 like, and I think even when this was written, like whatever, a thousand years or more ago, 2000 years, like it, I think people back then were thinking, Oh shit, the end of the world is coming like right around the corner. And I I grew up like I just shared this with you recently Max that uh I was a, you know, a junior high age or so and you know the <laughs> we talked about the end of the world so much at church that I thought, yeah, Jesus is probably going to be back before I graduate high school. So <laughs> there's no need to really plan for the future cuz it's like the end of the world is going to happen and it's all going to be over with and then we don't have anything to worry about. That's great. I'm sorry. I don't mean to. I don't mean to laugh. No, it was it's, real. Uh, you know, I had a similar upbringing. I, I certainly had contact with. He's particularly my grandmother. She was very much into, um, uh, broadly speaking, Christian eschatology. Mm -hmm. 
she really liked to, I mean, I remember being four and five years old and her talking about the end times and where was I going to be when the, get, you know, the trumpet blew and this and yeah. that. And it, it really does have this, you know, especially to a small child, this function of um, externalizing moral function, mm. if you like, so that, you know, okay, if this is coming, and there's a point of judgment or some point a point in the future where you're going to be held to account and there's some sort of higher power, higher authority that's going to be doing the evaluating. You want to be on your toes at all time, you know, a more expanded. I don't I don't want to the people who are believers out there. I don't want to insult anyone, mm-hmm. um, but I do liken it to the way my 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 younger son, Felix, talks when he anticipates Santa Claus coming. and whether Santa Claus is going to, you know, cross him off the list this year because he's done something wrong. That kind of externalizing function, I think, is very useful for religions. And eschatology functions in a lot of religions, not just Christianity. That's also interesting. Totally. Like, I, it somehow seems wired in, you know, we're, we're the Social Evolution podcast, and we're talking about the past, present, and future of society. And when I think of some of these... what I think of as like social technologies that have existed for a very long time that have helped civilization uh, last as long as it has. You could think about these as like um, commitment devices or ways of like delaying gratification, right? Or, uh, you know, uh, Jordan Peterson talks about being in like a, a a time separated bargain with your future self, right? Like how do we get ourselves on board to make sacrifices now for the sake of the future. And like this idea of like the judgment at the end of the world or the judgment after our own individual deaths kind of is like the, it's like the, uh, it's like the logical extension of this type of commitment device that like we use now, again, I'm, I'm sort of sounding like a, a, an atheistic sort of like psychologizing of this type of belief, but it, it, it's not surprising to me that this belief recurs over and over again in all kinds of formats throughout society as though it's like one of the key ingredients of the kind of social technology that we need in order to continue. Well, or, or, or that we don't need. And that's that's the arguable point. Sure. I mean, like there are these patterns, the patterns of thinking and behavior that happen by virtue of this. Let's call it a, a meta narrative structure. Mm-hmm that that lays atop your particular ideology religion or perspective you can look at the environmental movement since the 1970s as having this pattern of structure now it's not exactly the same there's not the supernatural component right uh but there's certainly this idea that you need to control your behavior you need to moderate your behavior in order to prevent the worst of the end times from coming about you don't want to be left behind you don't want your children and grandchildren to be cast into the lake of fire uh so to speak right the environmental movement shares a lot of these patterns so also does the uh, social justice movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to moderate your behavior. If there's an original sin component. There's this, this sense of atonement and behavioral change and deference to this, this future, this massive force that's out there that needs to be combated or else. Yes. All of these kind of um, have the similar pattern and it's and this is just an observation. It's not an accusation. Although I'm sure folks out there could turn it into an accusation. Yes. 
So let's just for a moment, like suspend, um, trying to like figure out what the right one or the wrong one is, because I'm sure our listeners are thinking, oh, I've got, this is the one that's the one that's important to pay attention to. And I want to, this meta narrative view are like the let's go meta, like we sometimes like to do, mm -hmm. which is to think about the, the function that it serves and actually seeing how these, even in this like recent genre of books of like get collapsitarians and let's get ready and let's prep or whatever is the contemporary version of this. Like a lot of the narratives today actually don't have a religious component in the way that we typically think of religion, right? In this more metaphysical sense, they are more kind of grounded. I mean, it's kind of funny. You can, it, it, sometimes people talk about the, the community that's very concerned about super intelligent AI taking over the world, mm -hmm. kind of like Terminator or something else being really, really bad as almost engaging in the same thought pattern, right? We need to like order and structure our behaviors right now to get ready for that thing. And there's almost like a, like a, a bargaining with their future selves or with this kind of like unborn trillions of people that have yet to come into existence that we need to make sure like we don't like create this. How can we propagate good memes in the code so that the future AI doesn't destroy us or exactly. whatever? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it almost has <laughs> a mobilizing force in almost exactly the same way that like the religious narrative of like the second coming of Christ or something like that does. It functions similarly. And you can maybe make an argument. Well, there's even a heaven or a Zion yes. in, in the, among singularitarians, yes. for example, those who believe in the technological singularity and that, you know, or post-human future in which we are all able to access this networked Matryoshka brain and become one with God and, and enjoy this kind of perpetual bliss yes. through technological means. It's a similar kind of pattern uh, as, you know, and it, this is not just the 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 eschatol eschatol uh, oh that's a hard word eschatological dimension namely the study of the end times it's also the how do we get to heaven and still be secular kind of yes. pattern <laughs> totally <laughs> totally yes yeah, the both the ai doom and the kind of transhumanist fantasy world of like infinite bliss and infinite life extension and you know whatever infinite orgiastic you know pleasures or something like this is part of that promise of the you know upload your brain and your mind and you can just have an experience whatever you want and materialize shit out of nothing and this infinite energy and whatever so cool let's let's focus on the doom side because that's kind of our apocalyptic narrative theme for the day um but let's trace it back like i think um the there's like the beginning maybe you could correct me if if i'm wrong on this like uh i think the original sort of secular version of this was from thomas malthus who was in the 18th century and he 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 noticed uh something about biology the kind of the reproduction of families like usually you get more offspring than than parents and that kind of creates an exponential effect in terms of population expansion. And he said, oh, it, like the population of humans is expanding in an exponential way, but our ability to uh, 
increase farming resources, resources food yeah. is more linear, then what's going to happen is the exponential growth in the population will just, you know, blow past the limits of the resources we have available. And we should expect there to be, I don't know, mass die-offs, famine, starvation, kind of civilizational mm -hmm. level collapse. Well, it's what, what's interesting about what few people, if, if our listeners have heard of Thomas Malthus, what they might find a little bit more interesting was to, the degree to which Malthus was a liberal, an old liberal, uh -huh. um, which is to say that he, you know, believed in a certain set of um, uh, th things about good governance and, you know, doctrinal things that we would ascribe to generally to classical liberals, mm -hmm. um, you know, private property um limited government that sort of thing so he was a liberal in that sense what's also interesting about malthus is that he's generally right mm -hmm. and in fact the malthusian situation for many people on the planet particularly before the end of the 20th century was just that so you saw geometric increases in the 1980s of the population of ethiopia for example mm -hmm. and we saw only uh, we saw a famine because they were unable to keep pace with the population. And there were a, a whole slew of factors for that, why that happened in Ethiopia. But primarily, um, it was that, that, uh, it was drought coupled with the uh, poor institutions. Mm -hmm. And so there is this neo-Malthusian model. We've seen it in Paul Ehrlich, mm -hmm. the population bomb, which was, uh, back written back in the sixties. We had the club of Rome. I think, which was in the early 70s. And these were sort of of a kind or yeah. of a piece. The limits to growth was their thesis. The limits yeah. to growth. That's right. Um, and they really do employ this, this very simple model of, of uh, you know, geometric population growth, uh, you know, in, par in a parallel track with um, uh, arithmetic growth of resources. Mm -hmm. So what the hell happened, man? Why didn't we all die off? <laughs> well... <laughs> This is a great question. I, you know, I want to do one more note of appreciation for Malthus or this Malthusian style thinking. Like it actually, I, I'm not familiar that deeply with people who study the collapse of previous civilizations, but it does, you know, even in the Bible, you have these, you know, the plagues or famines or this, you know, the idea of like years of plenty and years of little. And I sort of wonder if some of the ap apocalyptic paranoia is actually just memories a holdover from yes memories, from memories. yeah of like yeah. when it did collapse and maybe some of these collapses were indeed happening because of some kind of malthusian dynamic in to ancient civilizations i think that's a plausible hypothesis i you know i it would be cool to hear you know if if listeners know anything specific about this especially if they're familiar with the study of civilization collapse that might actually be a source who, of it. who wrote guns germs and steel that was jared diamond pulitzer prize winner. okay jared diamond has another book called collapse yes in which he really details the the ecological dynamics of some of these cultures that ended up dying yes. and says that there are warnings in here and it's 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 a really a neo-malthusian volume if i recall mm -hmm. um and and, and look, again, what's so powerful from a mimetic standpoint about some of these positions is that they are loaded with grains of truth. It's not to say that Jared Diamond is wrong in his assessment of why these civilizations failed. 
um, or collapsed. But what what they're missing is this understanding of how not to collapse. And in our last episode, you and I talked about culture uh, and technology. Let's add a third institutions. Yep. We said those are the three that we were going to focus on. Yep. Most of all, we've also we've also got nature in our in 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 biology or what inheres in our genes. Um, but th- this three technology institutions and culture, this is what's missing from the 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 Paul Ehrlichs and the Jared Diamond kind of warnings is, hey, we know how to do this stuff. We know how to avoid these these catastrophes. And that's because we know how to make resources grow geometrically. And that seems counterintuitive to a lot of people. Let me let me fo- let me stop it there in case you wanted to take it somewhere else, because I don't want to run us to run too far off track. But I- I'd love to come back to that at least. Yeah, well, let's at least bookmark it maybe for a, a deeper take in a future conversation, because we want I want to say focused on apocalyptic thinking. But this. This was a puzzle, and I think, you know, Stuart Brand and some of the other folks in the Long Now Foundation, Kevin Kelly, they've kind of taken to task, you know, the, the Paul Ehrlichs in the Club of Rome saying like, look, look, bro, this is not, this didn't happen like you thought it was going to happen, and here is why, right? And they talk yeah. about yeah. this way that, you know, there's there's a number of different things, technological innovation or the the ultimate resource is, is the, my favorite. What is it? Um, uh, Julian Simon uh-huh. wrote a, a, an excellent book uh, in the 1980s. Uh, that he, He's the one who famously bet Paul Ehrlich. Oh, yeah. And, and Ehrlich lost uh-huh. the bet. And Julian Simon wrote basically a tract as to why he knew that the price, they bet on the price of resources. Yeah. If you're going to have geometric growth of population, you're going to have the price of resources go up due to their yes, scarcity. Totally. Okay. And Julian Simon said, absolutely not. You pick the five, you pick the five resources, Paul Ehrlich, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Of course, 10 years later, all of the prices were lower and Paul Ehrlich lost the bet and had to send a guy a check. So Julian Simon famously won that bet and became the doomslayer extraordinaire. And he said <laughs> the reason why is that if you have institutions that preserve private property uh, profit and loss system. Yes. Um, and prices, accurate prices, and that's the really key thing there. Then you know, undist- relatively undistorted prices, you will never run out of e- resources because the human mind is the ultimate resource, and that's basically what you were getting to, which is this innovation thesis. Yeah, totally. So, you know, I think it's a debatable point. In fact, like if that is indeed an infinite resource like or or how how ultimate is it and we can talk about like you know real limits to growth like you know the the heat death of the sun or the entropic death of the universe like these are these are sort of the way 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 far outer limits there but let's let's not go there today but but to say that basically the history of the apocalyptic malthusians neo-malthusians or you know eschatological kind of philosophers have basically been wrong so far, and there's good reasons why they're wrong. But let's talk about the apocalypse, the role this apocalyptic thinking actually plays in this, because in a sense, maybe part of the explanation is 
we worry about apocalypses and then we work to avoid them and then we succeed at avoiding them in some way like this is a bit of the core part of the narrative around uh climate change right now right like the idea Mm -hmm. here i mean i think some people are very depressed and fatalistic and believe it's already too late yeah but like leaving the, the these dark green thinking aside right like i think there are plenty of people more in the bright green movement that are like hey this is real. We do need to change some shit. Like we need to whatever, you know, burn less energy, cause less heat. Uh, and we can, right. We should, and it will help us avoid this thing, which could be bad. Stop sinning and you won't go to hell. <laughs> sure. I'm, I, I mean, that's kind of, it, it, you know, we're advanced industrial societies, uh, currently use primarily fossil fuels. Um, that requires behavioral changes at the end of the day. Yeah. How do you how do you get those behavioral changes? Well, you have to start with shaming people, and, sure. <laughs> and you have to build a culture around uh, the es- the eschatology of climate, yeah. which is you know now what is it eleven years left on the clock because it was uh, last year it was twelve years, and we now have eleven years to go before it's irreversible climate change. Jim Bendel and the gang out of uh, out of the UK are the biggest proponents of this view that it's too late. You might as well get over your depression and anxiety. We're all going to die. Yeah. Let's just have fun. But we still need to be good environmental stewards. I don't why? know why. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but if you if you walk back a little bit from that, there's there's the Bill Gates types and the other yeah. you know luminaries who are going to be like, I'm really a really smart person. We're just going to figure out how to do it. But if we don't do it right now, it's going to be past the point of no return. Yeah. It's so it's quasi uh, quasi apocalyptic yeah i mean i so this is maybe a, a point of contention between us i'm not sure i i do think there is a positive role of the apocalyptic narratives insofar as they motivate us to innovate create the innovations that do end up avoiding these kinds of things i'm you know i'm more in the bright green camp which is sort of like i think we should do things like you know find better energy like why not get nuclear fusion or why not get, you know, generation four fission reactors or why not, you know, like the whole trend of what's called dematerialization or ephemeralization where, where we use less physical products, right? There's a way that these have become decoupled. There's a recent book and I can't think of his name, but he talks about McAfee. McAfee. What is his book called? It's pretty cool. It's uh, more with less. More with less. And, And this thesis is essentially you know, due to the innovation, we've already broken away from this thing of like, you know, essentially increasing per capita energy usage, right? Like once you kind of hit a certain level of technological innovation, actually, that's sort of reversing. And I think we're, we're in some, in the most modern societies, we're actually kind of past peak post uh, per capita energy use now. Like, I mean, it's, which is kind of cool. And this is, this is a, this is, it's, it's very cool. Um, if, if you are bright green, okay. Yeah. If you're light green, if you, if you yeah. will, I, 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 I tend to, to, to side with you on this. I'm absolutely for all these wonderful innovations, technologies that allow us to use more with less. We have a greedy incentive to do more with less. Nobody has an incentive to be a wastrel. And that's what people often forget. 
Um, and this is really what Mac- McAfee's point is, is that uh, people out of, out of um, you know, some sort of enlightened self-interest, co- corporations and so on, mm-hmm. will, will try to find means for waste elimination. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't hurt if you have some sort of bright green cultural aura around your behavior, mm-hmm. I don't think. I think what becomes problematic is when it comes back to the, the, the more cataclysmic thinking. Mm-hmm. And that's when, when it's like, if you don't stop doing X now, um, if we don't allow for draconian po- policy change that is terribly unproven and counterproductive, uh, you know, uh, there's my bias. Yeah. But if, if, if you take that in order to be a good steward of the environment, you must adopt the set of policies X, Y, Z. And it's almost always political. Mm-hmm. It's almost mm-hmm. always doctrinal. Yeah. Uh, then then we're going to go to hell in a handbasket that is the the kind of thinking that i think in on almost every dimension is counterproductive so when you say it can it can impel us to find solutions to problems to um for for say elon musk to offer a hundred million dollar prize for the group that figures out the best carbon mitigation technology or methane mitigation technology Amen to that. That's wonderful. Yeah. When it goes too far is when we try to put draconian measures in place that require the level of enforcement that creates scary hierarchies, scary and powerful global hierarchies, Mm -hmm. because otherwise you're not going to be able to keep anyone from defecting from your particular dark green worldview. Yeah. So this, I think you're kind of we're honing in on something that I think is very central to our talk today. I think it's a central thing in your book as well. And this is, it's almost like the, the catastrophic risks that some versions of catastrophic risk mitigation create, right? There's like a, there's a, it's like a trade-off, like we're trying to avoid this particular flavor. And this is a little bit of like, there's almost like a competing marketplace of what's, you know, what's the catastrophic risk that is the one that should like trump the other ones and who can like sell it or promote it. I mean, I would say generally the narrative of the climate one is winning, right? I mean, that is the one that like has the most, uh, you know, cultural, social and political like attention. I mean, it's controversial still to some people or some versions of the narrative at least are controversial, but there's a lot of attention. You know, there's a lot of research like ecologists and biologists and, you know, power and energy folks, you know, trying to come up with, you know, innovative new ways of of doing it. But let's, let's talk more abstractly about this idea. I think it was most acutely argued for by uh, a, a, a philosopher. I think he's out of England, Nick Bostrom. Recently, he he wrote a book. He's Swedish, but he's uh, he's in in oh. London. I think. I mean, he's at Oxford. Okay, okay. I think he's associated with the Future of Humanity Institute. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think he's founder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, you know, recently he there was a paper called the Vulnerable World Hypothesis, and I'm not going to go. It's a little bit of a technical thing based on probability, but the but the idea here is something that you maybe ha- have thought about, like. At, as our technological innovations increase in our world, you know, we this is not just the key to innovating our way out of these catastrophes, 
what actually ends up happening is more potentially catastrophic risk creating technologies become more widely available, right? It's the difference between like getting a hold of nuclear fissile material to make your own nuclear bomb is still pretty hard. But if you start thinking about some of this like biotech making the next COVID or something, you know, like COVID, but 10 times worse could be something that you could do maybe on a $10,000 budget in your garage. In your garage. Absolutely. In fact, I know guys here in Austin, I'm talking to you from Austin, Texas. I think you're coming to me from San what, Diego. San Diego? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, these guys are around here. They're uh, friends of mine who are bio biohackers who are famous for, um, you know, one is famous for self-administering uh, different kinds of therapies for the first time. And, you know, I know all these guys, they're, they're good buddies of mine and they're really interesting people and they have a really interesting outlook. But they and they also understand the gravity of the power that they hold when they do this stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, which is CRISPR in the garage, essentially. Um, And but if they what if they didn't or what if you had someone who was an incel instead of going out with a, you know, with a an automatic or semi-automatic rifle to a shopping mall and shooting people up, decided, oh, no, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to create a really virulent version of Ebola and of coronavirus and of the flu. And I'm going to release them all into the world right now Yep, and see what happens just because I don't like humanity. Um, and I hate that I was ever born and I can't get laid and boom, die humans. Why not? This is the kind of existential threats that some people like Nick Bostrom are worried about. And it's not unjustifiable. Totally. And it's it's another form, like to reuse that word, you use endogenous, right? It's not like an asteroid hitting the world or like a cosmic ray or a giant solar flare that's just wiping out the electrical grid, which we have, ve- we have very little control over, but we can potentially mitigate those. But these are the kinds that we generate ourselves through our own, whatever you want to call it, our own ingenuity or dark, our own dark ingenuity, so to speak. And his argument, as far as I understand it, is that like, we should assume that like as more time, you know, seconds on the clock, you know, years on the calendar go by, the probability of something like one of these things falling into the wrong hands, a bad actor, somebody who's in a bad mood or having a bad day, or is just sociopathic or broken in some way does do this goes up. So then the question is, how do we mitigate that? And I don't know, I can't tell whether to take him seriously or not, but he did. He has a term now. He calls it turnkey totalitarianism. He's like, well, one possible solution to this is surveil everybody all the time and just have a way to essentially like detect it or like shut, shut it down, down like instantly. And like, I think this is exactly the kind of reasoning that you are warning against in your book after collapse, where it's like, well, if we create, we can actually create countermeasures that themselves are creating their own catastrophic risk. Cause if you look at the, the list, the future humanity Institute has about like, well, what are some of the global catastrophic risks? Well, one of them is totalitarianism, right? You could, if you had a high tech enough version of totalitarianism, right? You could, uh, essentially establish a horrible dictatorship that was more or less impossible to overthrow. 
I mean, and and look, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious to hear from Bostrom himself and others who have worked on this idea because it, it to me it seems self evident. It's it's almost like an infinite regress problem. It's like okay, you have this turnkey totalitarianism where you have this mass surveillance. You want to make sure that any of none of these idiots working in garages on CRISPR technologies is some sort of sociopath, right? And once you and so who's going to turn the key? Is that going to be an angel? Well, the statistical probability of throwing a stone into an audience of politicians and hitting a fucking angel is about zero. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and the probability of hitting a totalitarian in that population is really high, as we just saw with the last president of the United States. I don't think he's a I don't think I think Trump was more of a charlatan than a totalitarian, but he definitely had the instincts. Mm -hmm. And certainly people of dark green sensibilities thought he had. So it's like. When you have these ab abhorrent leaders in office, the expectation that you're going to have these angelic functionaries to protect us all is complete horseshit. Yep. So what's your answer to that, Nick Bostrom? I, I want to know. Come on the show. I mean, the thing that's funny about this. Yeah, it'd be great if we had Nick. Like the, these these all start like interlinking with each other. And this is this is um, I almost think of this as like meta apocalyptic thinking because you eat right. It's like, well, we don't want to hand it to an authoritarian. What if we can hand it to an algorithm, right? But then we had this whole other camp that's talking about, you know, <laughs> algorithmic <laughs> runaway <laughs> problems and alignment <laughs> problems and super intelligence explosion. And I'm like, oh, okay. So that has its own risk too. So it's like, <laughs> like the, the computer can become a much more horrible sociopath than your, the worst dictator in all of history. So there's another risk over there. I mean, and here, look, here's the thing, you know, it's, it's, Let's just pretend like one of the things that people have been talking about recently since the pandemic is and, and soon it'll become, you know, the pandemic of 2020, 2021. Mm -hmm. We hear a lot of things like we're going to have to just get used to pandemics because we have um, a lot of a lot more opportunities for transmission vectors through global trade. Mm -hmm. And it's not likely that global trade is going to reverse. Mm -hmm. Even if everybody was to isolate China because it became more scary and totalitarian than it is, um, one could say that about the United States, but for another day. Um, <laughs> uh, the Chinese are ahead of us in this regard, I think. Mm -hmm. If, you know, even if you were to isolate China, we're likely to get, you know, I think one of the... Um, one of the bird flu or the swine flu or something came out of Mexico. There's, um, we, we can imagine it coming out of any number of countries, including the United States. Uh, and they don't just, it, it, especially if these don't come out of labs, they can also come out of, uh, you know, you know, concentrated animal husbandry, that sort of stuff where animals get it, pass it, and then pass it on to humans. Yep. There's all kinds of disease vectors for these situations. So we have to ask ourselves, are pandemics going to come with greater frequency? Are existential risks similarly going to come with greater frequency? Yep. Right. So if you if you look at the pandemic as, OK, we got to start getting ready for these and how we get ready for them is to adopt really interesting and fast paced heuristics to develop in in um, counter tech to countervailing veiling technologies. Mm -hmm. We are there is a slow learning process for the 2020 pandemic. We know we got to test more. We know we got to change the FDA pro passing uh, FDA process for allowing testing to come to market, allowing for vaccines to come to market more quickly. Yep. You know, once we start to make these adaptations and some of these are institutional problems, we can talk about that in another episode. 
But generally speaking, we're, we're going to be able to address pandemics better than before the pandemic. Yes. Okay. And that's, that's really inter- interesting. If we have existential risks, are we going to become more adaptive to them with enough speed through these sort of heuristic and distributed models to keep, up, keep pace with them and mute them when they happen? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if the ex- exponential aspect of these technologies, if the response is going to be able to keep pace exponentially. I don't want to make a club of Rome kind of claim yeah. about existential risk, yeah. you know, but I do want to say I acknowledge that I understand why people are afraid. Yeah, I understand it too. You know, this, I think it is, you know, an interesting moment in history and maybe all people who ever lived thought they lived in an interesting moment of history or like the turning point of something. And my version of that for us at least is, is this is really the first globally interconnected society in, in all of history. Right. I mean, there are little dark spots that are sort of disconnected like North Korea or, or really remote jungles or something. But for the most part, all humans are globally interconnected through, through supply chains, you know, in the physical world or through the internet, communications, technology, communication technology. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, we sometimes wonder, you know, where, where are all the other aliens? Right. And there's this kind of, there's a whole topic here of the, you know, the Drake equation or what's called the Fermi paradox. It's like, well, if there is other intelligent life in the universe, why haven't we heard from them? There's a whole category of answers to that, which is, um, this thing called the great filter, which is sort of like any any life out there in the history of the universe that got sufficiently advanced ended up self-terminating because of essentially what we're talking about, like some some version of aliens experiencing like a moment of endogenous self-annihilation through the advancement of their technology. And I think we are sort of in that moment, right? Like, I mean, if you the internet is a relatively new thing. You know, it's within more or less our lifetimes that it became widely distributed. You know, c- computers, digital electronic computers are less than a century old. Um, and the, the power that those things give us to ad- innovate and advance and to distribute these innovations and advancements to more people is like in- incredibly more widespread than ever before. And it makes sense that th- this version of apocalyptic fear, of, of a collapse fear, is very real. And I, I, my favorite term for this moment in history that we're living in, uh, Toby Ord, he's another one of these long-termist, effective altruist types. I think he's also with the Future of Humanity Institute, if I'm not mistaken, but maybe he's with the Center for Effective Altruism. But he wrote a book, and he calls this period the precipice. Mm. We are on the precipice right now where essentially that that possibility of things of like an incredibly amazing future, like of, of like super abundance, abundance. Yeah. Yeah. Available, you know, like the, the solutions to poverty and long term illness and incredible medical innovations and the ability to spend a whole bunch of time, you know, just recreating and enjoying ourselves is possible. And we are also in the middle of doing the thing that uh, Nick was Nick Bostrom is talking about in the vulnerable wall hypothesis. We're just 
generating innovations that if they fell into the wrong hands could could kill, could us, kill all. us all and we're right in the middle where this is this story is only you know at its beginning which is a which is a kind of a scary idea so there's this quote um and i i heard this a long time ago stuart brand i think more recently it was jordan hall who brought up this quote but i remember it's something like this we are as gods it's time we got better at it mm -hmm. which is to say and 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 i wonder about this quote um and i and i want to see the context of it i think it it has a, a large measure of truth to it which is which means i can agree up to a point we are as gods we have to get better at it in other words the tools and rules that we're creating for ourselves allow us to um kill each other kill us all if we're not careful mm -hmm. CRISPR being one of the examples um climate change for some and these are all driven by the technologies that were at first designed to improve our lives yes and they have this dark side they have the shadow as almost everything does in this world in this life so to be as a god what does that mean it means to have this technological capability it's to to take the promethean fire for oneself as a human being and try not to burn yourself mm -hmm. so you better start learning how to not burn yourself well how do you do that some say and this is really where the debates come in and these are really interesting debates to me i don't purport to know uh which one who's right i do have my own thesis which you set out at the beginning for me uh, in a very, very succinct fashion, which is we better not re re react with fear or we're going to introduce structures, societal structures that will for sure kill us. Because I know one thing, the only thing that's killed us more than viruses in this world is other humans. Mm -hmm. The democides created by totalitarian states have killed more human beings throughout history than any other thing besides viruses Incredible. and natural death, of course, because we all die. Mm -hmm. But we think about whole species, whole nations dying. This is the real fear. So what do we do about it? And I don't think being as gods is what we want to do any more than I earlier said we want to try to expect that there'll be angels to protect us because no one is. Mm -hmm. um, instead, we need to develop patterns of, we need to develop a culture of wisdom for sure i don't disagree with that and this is sort of the jordan hall the daniel schmachtenberger the the perhaps stuart brand camp but i also think that there are uh, countervailing rules and tools that can be developed that will help us at least develop heuristics speedy heuristics to respond to existential threats more in real time more locally and through technological means that's that's interesting to me i haven't fully unpacked that half-baked thought but it's coming out on the show right now. And I'm curious to, to get your response to that. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to maybe take it in a slightly different direction, but I mean, yes, I'm right. Take, take it away. Riffing different off of direction. this. Well, this idea of these values, you can see these types of values you're talking about in our wisdom traditions, right? You could talk about the, mm -hmm the values of like universal compassion or benevolence or a value of oneness, like one human family idea. And I think these folks, you know, from the, or the kinds of social change strategies like you know, Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. use like nonviolence or what's the word, the ahimsa idea mm -hmm. from, um, from, uh, 
the nonviolent movement from the in Vedic India. tradition. Yeah, the Vedic yeah. tradition. Yeah, and so we already have it in a way, right? Like this is sort of like you know the what's good about religion part, right? If religion is a social technology, this is one of the parts that's, that's sort of good about it. I mean, we could look about the what's bad about religion, religious wars, which is another you know risk altogether. But this part is good. So then. What does that actually like imply or or sort of look like if we if we if we start trying to really institute it, you know, there's of course the kind of what we talk about sometimes and like we'll spread the meme or the value or the principle or the virtue, right? And I think that's a matter of, you know, hearts and minds and persuasion and some of what we're doing. And this is stuff that I definitely believe in. You know, if I, if I held on to certain things from you know, my Christian upbringing, it was this idea of like, you know, it's a gospel of peace and it's a gospel for all humanity, right? This idea. Um, and I think that's a, that's a huge component that's in the cultural category. If we're kind of going back to our, our pillars or our dimensions, but there's an institutional category and a technological one as well. And if I, if I start thinking about like, well, what is, what does this look like? What is, oneness or universal benevolence or these kind of things start looking like and it's easy for me to imagine ones that sort of look better and worse to me but whatever they are it's a little bit like um the tv show black mirror you know uh, most of those episodes of that tv show I, I love that show by the way if you haven't seen it i think it's great That's oh it's absolutely wonderful yeah, yeah. it's burned it, through them all yeah it's depicting this kind of stuff and every once in a while there would be one that was a little bit like a the positive side, right? Mm -hmm. We'd be like, oh, and then those two ladies fell in love with each other. And then they like went off <laughs> into like upload paradise forever. You know, the San Junipero one, which is sort of one of the more mm -hmm. favorite ones. I, like, I love that one. It's yeah. so good. And that, you know, it's, it's almost like there's like a, um, this idea of a gray mirror. I think, I think Rice Lindmark actually has a, a podcast brand called gray mirror. I think that's the guy who's, who's doing that one. And it's this idea, like, it, it sort of can, from our point of view, look a little bit scary, right? Like to, to invoke, you know, the, the history of major uh, evolutionary transitions in biology, right? There was, a, there was millions and millions of years on Earth where the only life was single cells, right? But then there was the emergence of multicellular organisms. And guess what happens when you have multicellular organisms? This is a kind of centralization right our central nervous system and hormone system is essentially you know the boss of all of our little cells and when you know our cells rebel we call it cancer right and we try to kill it to get rid of it right <laughs> so this we are a colony of like trillions of cells that have all decided to kind of bond together for a more unitary purpose so if we think about where this could go in the future to prevent these cataclysmic risks, right? Maybe we actually do need something that could really bump up against our liberty-minded, freedom-loving instincts that like want to make sure that we're not crushing ourselves under an authoritarian regime. But I'm like, I don't know. Sometimes I think of like, communities of decentralists and cryptocurrencies like sending all of these information signals you know freely to each other but actually sort of creating a kind of 
bond or like a, a unitary vibe, which starts to feel like a, an emerging multicellular organism or, or something like this. I don't know. What do you think of these thoughts is like, this is what it looks like the solution. Well, I, I think there is, if this is, this is good to press me on because, um, first of all, the answer is, I don't know. I I have a lot of humility before this question. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you, you'll see someone as early as someone like Ludwig von Mises, which is about as liberal a mind as you can get in terms of, um, you know, economic and personal freedom. And even Mises, who happened to be, um, he was a Jew, and in after World War II, you know, he wrote Human Action, which is his magnum opus. And in this book, he even talks about the necessity for conscription if there is an existential threat, because he had just seen the Nazis carry it out, right? Yes. So his liberalism had a limit. And I think what you're describing here is... Okay, what if we have this wonderful, uh, you know, in my first book, The Social Singularity, we, we, you and I are familiar with the idea. You have this mass lateralization. People are free to self-organize into these subsystems and holons that are really interesting from the standpoint of experimentation, from the extent, standpoint of um, whatever sphere of activity you, you're in, you're able to congregate or or live among people who share your conception of the good. And this is really one of the benefits and blessings of decentralization. Mm-hmm. But in the process, you can't always weed out the bad or what one other part of the super system thinks is bad. Right. And, you know, one, one part of the super system is another part's cancer. <laughs> yes. As you, to use your metaphor. So if you think of this as a, a, a corpus, and I don't want to get fascist, because Mussolini really saw, you know, the body politic as this super organism. It's really weird shit. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, but it's weird. And, um, and I don't want to, to collapse the ecosystem of society metaphor into uh, an organism metaphor. I think there's, it's problematic in this regard. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying is not wrong. That is, if, if the, the ecosystem or this great barrier reef of activity could self-organize a larger metabrain to observe its own health, what would it do about the subsidiary systems or aspects or holons in the system to ensure that there was nothing catastrophic for the whole? Yes. Um, and human brains do this. The central nervous system has a limit. Our, you know, our, our uh, kidney renal cells self-organizes kidneys. And right. our... Our central nervous system isn't telling our lungs to do very much of anything. Those yeah. cells reor- uh, self-organize in, in interesting ways. And that maybe you get some action from the medulla oblongata that says, you know, expand, contract, expand, contract. But about that's about it, right? Because it's sure. serving its function. It's adhering to its t- telos, which has been determined by non-teleological forces of evolution and emergence. Yep. Okay. But you're not wrong in the sense that at some point in the future, if we realize what you and I think of as this, this social singularity, which is this a lot less top down, what is, the, what is a, <clears throat> a superordinate structure that could form or emerge to protect itself? Is it what would happen in a holocratic 
organization, let's say the whole world went with holacracy. Um, Michael is an expert in holacracy. Yep. Um, and the, 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 the central idea is that organizations are arranged in teams or holons that have their own set of rules, duties, and responsibilities for the mission of the organization, right? Yes. Let's say the, there is no mission for mass scale society unless it, it, that mission is to live <laughs> as yes. a totality, to live as a, a single corpus, an interconnected entity. And in that way, you might get, you might get a kind of, it, it, we might leave open the idea of a super intelligence that at the very least monitors things for existential threats. But I don't know what that looks like that isn't totalitarian. And I'm not sure anybody else does either. Yeah. It's, it, it's frighteningly like looks immediately totalitarian to some people's eyes as soon as you start describing something like it. Uh, but I, I, I love that we're here, like, you know, in humility, I also feel this way. You know, there, sometimes I'll find these collapsitarians, you know, D Daniel Schmachtenberger and sometimes Jim Rutt, depending on, you know, they, they differ from each other in their opinions. But once you kind of identify this idea of like uh, the, the, the vulnerable world hypothesis that Nick Brostrom has, or this idea of like the systemic fragility of too many interconnected systems, right? Or it's kind of like sources of endogenous collapse. You know, you can think of like like the stock market, the flash crash in the stock market was sort of an algorithmically caused collapse. There was no economic reason for it, right? Okay, that could happen. And, or, or even like classical ideas, like, you know, the Hobbesian trap, right? Like yeah, the, the, these ideas of the race to the bottom or, you know, like a evolutionary arms race, like the Red Queen effect or these sorts of things. We, we kind of know what they're like. I mean, we see these dynamics actually at play between our biological immune systems and, um, viruses and bacteria like invaders we we also see it in cybersecurity, right like you know the these hackers get better at this and then the countermeasures come out and then they, the it's, it's, it's a never-ending ratcheting effect of these kinds of systems that's a great example michael i want to i want to pick that out if i can for a moment yeah and and this is this is still on the subject of apocalypse because these these guys can actually cause this okay um the the hackers the people the you know whether we're talking about russian hackers or wherever you want in the world there is a war going on that that very few people know about that is in cyber cybersecurity space yes where people are constantly trying to damage systems invade systems steal anything tr trade things that you wouldn't want them to trade in there's just so much of it it's going on in the dark web it's going on in the actual web and there's so much going on that if people knew about it, they would be absolutely horrified. Yep. But the emergent systems that have developed to guard against it, you know, we'll see a, an article here or there about the, some large bank that, you know, was hacked into and had resources stolen or people who've had hackers, you know, demand Bitcoin from you and you don't even know what Bitcoin is, but you're going to lose your computer if you don't give it to them right now and this and that, or they you know, <laughs> yeah. found some naked pictures of you, whatever. Um, you know, these kind of things are happening everywhere. We only get the most sensational stories, but it's going on all the time. And there's an there. It's almost like this predator, predator, prey defense phenomenon 
at all times. Yep. If if people actually knew what that was, they would see, and, and then you just add the ingredient, uh, just a, a an eyedropper full of the existential threat to that entire matrix. It could be a really scary story. You could make a movie out of it, or even twelve. Yep. <laughs> right. Yep. Um. So this. So if we're not talking about hacking into a big bank and stealing a couple million dollars, and we're talking about instead um, hacking into a facility and launching nuclear missiles from some base in Alaska towards Russia to cause mutually assured destruction. Yep. That's some crazy, scary stuff. Totally. And um, and cybersecurity is one of these these areas where I think existential threats are already rife, but it also demonstrates that so far so good, right? That these more distributed responses tend to mute some of the greatest excesses of the predators in the space. So far. Yeah. So far. Yep. But there yeah. are black swans. Totally. There are always black swans. Well, the one that just happened, I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was just in 2021. It was like the biggest hack ever like in, in all of cybersecurity history. I can't remember what it was like making headlines all over the world. So it's, it's recent. It's very recent. And, and it, they're going to be more frequent. Yep. They're going to be more frequent. These it's, things. It's, it's another one of those things. It's, one, it's like, well, the more compute is available to a citizen, then the more that compute could be weaponized. If, if what you're talking about is, is sort of like attacking, you know, other compute controlled things, right? Like, it's a part of the it's a part of the landscape now, and that could potentially bad actors can take that over. But like this combination, you're saying like the sufficiently advanced technology and this kind of social dynamic, which is essentially an extension of what is biologists call an evolutionary arms race, which takes place all over. Like you said, predator and prey. That's all over nature. Like this is ancient, ancient thing, right? It's like we're we're just competing for more more rays of sunlight that we can kind of capture into ourselves, right? I mean, that's ultimately kind of what it is. So yeah, like, is it one of these things where it's like, look at if we're talking about having a global or a planetary like, or, or think in long-termism, right? If we're gonna avoid this thing that maybe killed off the aliens because they hit this great barrier and imploded and self-destructing, and we like really believe in, and I think this is a, a bit of a sell. You got to sell people on this. Like, I, I bought it, bought into it though. That, hey, intelligent life is good. Sentient life is a good thing. Like, it's kind of cool that there are conscious beings having conscious experiences in the universe. And so far as we know, planet Earth is the only places that they are, like for, with certainty. So, shouldn't that be our responsibility, like in a way, to make sure that it propagates? You know, as as long as there is starlight around, right? As long, like, as long as the universe is still there, wouldn't it be better for there to be conscious, intelligent life? And, and I would want there to be, but if, if, if we're in a moment, this precipice moment that Toby Ord talks about, like, this is where the solution starts to seem like we got to find another thing, which is like coordination and, you know, working backwards from that ultimate goal. This is what people talk about when they talk about like the Paris, the Paris climate agreement, right? It's like, if you're talking about a kind of problem, which is in the commons, right? Like the atmosphere or uh, nuclear non-proliferation treaties, like something that requires multilateral coordination, 
right? Like otherwise it's going to blow up. It, it, you know, this is often one of the places where I have felt like pressing you on your thinking. Cause it, it does seem like, okay, we don't want to be coordinated about everything. Like I don't want to feel like somebody's telling me what to do in the privacy of my own bedroom. Right. But we, like if it's a global level problem and we could risk a kind of like, what are you, a multipolar Hobbesian trap, we would need to have a thing that like cemented that in place, or at least avoided the, the worst case scenarios of it, or kind of, if it started happening, we can easily contain it, which means stronger security mechanisms at that level. It seems like that's unavoidable in some, in some way, which is right. Well, so a couple of questions. One is our, um, if we look at the past in terms of our expectations about what me what mechanisms were safe. Yes. Right. So we have this blue church idea mm -hmm. uh, from Jordan Hall. It's also called the cathedral, uh, but it's basically this idea of the benevolent, uh, a benevolent layered set of hierarchies that produce certain knowledge set and ha have certain kinds of um, um, authority. Yeah, it's, to, Hobbes, it's Hobbes's Leviathan, basically, right? Well, it's Hobbes's Leviathan, but it's also coupled with a cultural matrix yes. and a and a um, um, an information matrix that is also hierarchical. So mm -hmm. you get, you know, government institutions uh, or government entities. You get ABC, NBC, CBS, the right. major papers. Um, and they all sort of collude into this, you know, matrix of understanding where it's, you know, we put our hands over our hearts and pledge allegiance to the flag and, you know, whatever the president says, uh, is, is probably going to be a good thing, at least if it's interpreted properly by Walter Cronkite and everybody sort of falls in line yeah. and we, we beat the bad guys, which are the Russians or the Nazis or whatever, right? Yeah. Those days are over and we know that. So yep. a hierarchical response to a hierarchical threat was perhaps appropriate in those times, but at decentralized threats, the, the, what I'm, what I'm stuck on is the idea that there's going to have to be a decentralized response to decentralized threats. And that is scary to people because you don't know what it looks like. Emergent self-organizing decentralized systems are really hard to sketch and understand in their totality mm -hmm. because they don't come from any kind of plan. Yep. You know, people kept saying, what is your plan, Trump, for beating the pandemic? What's your plan? And of course, when Biden came out, he said, I've got a plan for beating the pandemic, which was no different, uh, except lots and lots of largesse that we didn't have that were poured into the same damn thing that was happening before. Yeah. Um, there's no plan. It's just a whole bunch of money in political theater. <laughs> um, so both Trump and Biden completely botched the vaccine rollout, which was the which would have been the decentralized response, you know, mm -hmm. liberalizing the testing regime, um, yep. you know, a month into the pandemic would have been fantastic because they already had tests at that time. Yep. Let us test at home. You know, it's neither a food nor a drug. Why the fuck is the FDA regulating it? Anyway, I exactly. don't want to get caught on that. But the decentralized solutions were muted at every turn. Yep. And the centralized solutions were foobar as soon as they came out. Yep. And everybody said, oh, they've done such a good job. Anthony Fauci, bullshit. Right. You've mm -hmm. got to have these decentralized solutions 
But here's what I want to push back on for a second. Mm -hmm. If, as Daniel Dennett would say, we're programmed by, we're essentially programmed by evolution to find babies cute, we're probably Mm -hmm. also programmed to want our genes to be propagated in perpetuity and have some sort of uh, progeny or some sort of human posterity. Yeah. Why does anybody give a shit about that? Strictly speaking, I do, you do, I know you do. Yeah. This, this, this actually motivates you very deeply and in, in, in separate conversations. And I hope you don't mind me saying that, but I remember yeah. you telling me this, yeah. that this is a prime mover motivator for you. Yeah. Why? Why? I mean, I don't, I don't require a deeper self understanding of it beyond simply. I think. Why do you care about the heat death of the universe after you die? (sighs) If you, if your answer is I don't, then wind it back in time to the moment after your death. (laughs) Sure. I mean, sure. I, I suppose it is a spiritual thing. I don't know. Like, I mean, there's something. It it does take on a mystical quality at a certain level. I mean, I could, I could, I could attribute it to a biological quality if I'm like, yeah, well, my genes program me to want to, you know, reproduce, and I like that. Or you know, I you know, I I have had a positive family life growing up, and I would want to create more of a positive family life. The, the joys of just humans being connected or relating with each other is in itself good. It's a little bit like saying like, what, you know, why does sentience, why is sentience valuable? It's just sort of like, well, it's, it's the foundation from which even our concept of having value comes from, right? We, it's like a precondition. It's almost like a a Kantian transcendental induction. You're just sort of like, yeah, well, you gotta have moral agents in order to even have moral philosophy, right? It's a little bit constructivist in that sense, but I think it's important. But once we get there, you know, but it's, sentience is a precondition of of valuing. That's clear. I totally. agree with that. Yeah. But posterity is not a precondition for you living your life well now. And how much of your life, and I'm playing devil's advocate for a moment. Sure. How much of your life are you willing to trade off for the sake of posterity? I don't know. How much of the good things I, yeah. in your life are you yeah, willing to I trade mean, off for the sake of posterity? Totally. I mean, if I, if I think of, if, if I, Think back to when I rejected my religious upbringing, you know, there's some moment of like, I don't want to make this kind of temporal trade off with some like, you know, soul that's going to exist after I die in heaven because that might not happen. So I want to have fun now. Right. There's a little bit of a like <laughs> get bailing the, out of the it's fancy pa- Pascal's wager. It's the opposite of it. It's yeah, like it's yeah. like the it's like the the spring break. 2021 wager (laughs) (laughs) something like that yeah and you know i have i can also look back and you know there there is something that feels empty and dissatisfying i mean if we if we think about you know the the postmodern condition right this idea that like we can't know with certainty whichever axis along which we're calling something valuable means anything relative to any other one and you know it's just as likely to be a system for power and control as it is likely or an oppression than it is to be a system of like positive value. There's a malaise that comes with that. Like I know that in in moments when I've felt like I am productively engaged with my life and creating or providing value that for other people, I like it. I feel good. 
Why am I wired to do that? Maybe there's some pro-social instincts or intuitions that my genes are giving me to, to fucking do that, right? Like being a, a narcissistic, nihilistic, hedonistic, sociopathic <laughs> person literally doesn't feel good to me, right? Like it sort of has like a, a shelf life or it's like, like a- yang, yang, yang. It just, Yeah. It, it, yeah. But what, what's the, there's a healthy balance there though, for sure. sure. Because I know you have enough instincts in you that you don't want the life that you're living now completely um, intruded upon by those with catastrophized thinking. Yes. Right. In other words, uh, we share this. In other words, it's like, yes, we want to make sure that our posterity is taken care of. I remember, I'll tell you briefly, I remember reading uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. And it really is a metaphor for this. It's like, despite the bleakness, it's a, it's a, an apocalyptic novel, really. It's like a, almost like a nuclear winter. There's very little vegetation left. It's cold. It's miserable. And this mm -hmm. guy and his son are traveling this very long hero's journey through mm -hmm. people who are basically zombies and predators who are trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And this man is, just wants to do one thing. And by the end of the novel, you realize what it is. And I, if, Turn us off now if you don't like me to to to, to spoil spoiler the alert. Spoiler alert. Um, and that's to protect his son, which is carrying his genes. And it is the only thing that that man gave a damn about probably in his whole life. And I found out after Cormac McCarthy won the National Book Award for that book that he had had a son late in life. I think he must have been in his 60s or 70s when he had that son. Wow. And it's a powerful thing. I had, I was sitting in the bed reading it with tears running down my face when I had my son in utero beside me. Mm. And it's yeah. just, I know why you can't explain it because when you start thinking about your own kids and their kids, it makes sense. It's ineffable. You can't yeah. explain why it just, you just know it in your bones. But I think that there are also people like Ted Kaczynski, who just mm -hmm. knows in his bones that humanity is a plague on the planet. And that's really based on neo-Malthusian thinking. They oh, see yeah. human beings as maggots on the planet and they need to be eradicated. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're getting into, we're getting personal here, which I, I like. And I think there's like a, an aspect of, you might call it just mental, emotional, psychic social health and well-being that's a part of this equation and absolutely know, I, right like there's <laughs> there's a part of me that wants to do this benevolence thing that wants to make this kind of like time trade for even after i'm dead and and i could actually see this happening you know in tr traditional cultures actually do it really well right this idea that like you're you're kind of born in a state of obligation to your ancestors or, or, or indebtedness to your ancestors and obligation to your progeny into the future. And it's like, yeah, you're, you're kind of, that's, that's what it means to even exist, right? You, you, you wouldn't even be here if there wasn't a whole line of ancestors leading up to you that like succeeded at giving you what you have that you did mm -hmm. not earn. It's not a meritocratic concept. Mm -mm. The conservative concept is not meritocratic in this sense. It's, it's purple values in, in spiral dynamics integral, right? It's, it's, um, or Amber. It's yeah. like, or, okay. Um, mm -hmm. you're, you're here and your life confers meaning 
uh, because you get to maybe be a father or a mother or a grandfather. That's what That's gives right. your life meaning. Don't forget Ex- that. Exactly. It's true. <laughs> it's true, but not true in some sort of enlightenment or, you know, orange meme sense of that, you know, that we can find it through either Darwinian, Dar- some sort of Darwinian analysis can explain it, but that's not how you know it. You know right. it in your bones. You exactly. know it because it's it's wisdom that comes that is born um, that is born into you uh, by virtue of Darwinian processes. But those have to be felt and experienced. But you yes. but you are you 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 really onto something here with this idea of catastrophic thinking. They're, they they yes. even um, or at least that's what I heard, and I and I want to make sure that's where you want to go. Yes. I um. There is this phenomenon with people who suffer from depression and anxiety called catastrophizing. Yes. And so when you engage in cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which is a mm-hmm. very popular and very successful form, especially when in combination with, with uh, pharmaceuticals, mm-hmm. th- to, to rein in depression and anxiety, uh, c- you know that you have uh, depression and anxiety when you demonstrate one of these cognitive distortions. And they enumerate the cognitive distortions, and so many of them sound exact. Like you can just read the list, and when you mm-hmm. read the list of what they do, it sounds almost like the arguments of uh, Extinction Rebellion, yeah, for example, mm-hmm. or any other folks who have catastrophist thinking. It's it's like I would be willing, I would love to see a study done of people who believe in the you know climate change end times, if you will. Yep. Uh, or any other of these sort of catastrophic visions of the future to see if there, how many of them as percentage of population are suffering from depression and anxiety. And I bet you it'd be higher than the norm. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had some, you know, ongoing contact and connections in the effective altruism community, which I freaking love it. I mean, I, you know, Will McCaskill and Toby Ord and all these guys doing the effective altruism. I think it's revolutionary. I think it's like really amazing stuff. And this topic comes up, right? Like the the actual quality of life, right? If if you sort of it's almost like if you're like a hyper rationalist person and you're sort of thinking in terms of like an economist and expected value and Bayesian probabilities about <laughs> yeah. everything, you're like counting the minutes in your fucking life, right? You're like can I somehow figure out how to sleep less? So maybe I should go do polyphasic sleeping, right? Like, or right. It's like, <laughs> how much are my money? Okay. I'm going to only every, every dollar I earn above $20,000 a year is just going to be donated automatically. Right. Like how it's like, you could really crank this dial in, in a kind of, it's almost like a neo puritanical thing. Yeah. Right like on yourself or even more like those medieval Catholics that would, you know, beat themselves with whips so they could suffer and punish themselves. Like, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, wait a minute, but isn't the thing, isn't the thing that you want for the unborn trillions, you know, to be born a thousand years from now is to enjoy the goodness of, of existing, but you're going to like, essentially make your life miserable now like wait a minute there's some weird way that this trade-off equation is it's not just a hundred zero like for them and not for me but you can get into this self-sacrificing thing and you can get into this paranoia 
right? Or, or, or anxiety or depression. I'm not sure if it's more anxiety or more depression, but like, you know, I, I do think there's some amount of self-reflection in the EA community, particularly on like, yeah, like let's take a chill pill sometimes, or let's, let's meditate sometimes, or let's like, let's enjoy our lives sometimes. Cause otherwise we could just grind ourselves into the mission into like smithereens and like that there's something wrong with that too. Right. You know, like it's interesting. We've got, there's so many, um, I'm seeing so many, I guess you would call it ersatz cognitive behavioral therapy coming out now. Notice uh, how the Stoics are really big now. Totally. Right. Stoicism is, is really, it's back. You know what I mean? Oh uh, yeah. Uh, uh, the Aristotelian idea of balance and temperance, people returning to the virtues, uh, you know, whether that's the Catholic virtues, which are built upon, you know, these, uh, the classical virtues, it's, it's really interesting to see the, the sort of re-embrace of these somewhat jettisoned positions because, mm -hmm. because, oh, it's like, oh, I actually understand them functionally and emotionally now. Yes. And to readopt them gives me something back that I had gotten rid of mm -hmm. either because I became a ratiocination machine or because I became a, a hysterical hyperventilator, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, one way or the other, I'm a, a, a Bayesian neuroatypical robot or on the one hand, or I'm, a, you know, um, I'm, you know, going out and climbing on top of buses to keep them from going any further and producing greenhouse gases because, you know, this little Swedish girl told me to, you know, it's like, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like the, I think the wisdom traditions, I've been just really obsessed with so many of the wisdom traditions lately because they they were they were right. It's like they said things for a reason, and now we get it. Yeah, you know, and and balance in all things is one of those things. It sounds like such a cliche, but it's like, oh yeah, now I understand why there is this golden mean, this middle ground between excess and. Uh, what do they call it? It's in German in my mind, Mangashaf, but it's a uh, um, sc scarcity. Um, yeah. it, the long and short of it is there are these great heuristics that sound almost just like like uh, aphorisms. Totally. That we need Cliches. to readopt sometimes. Stop yeah. thinking too hard about it and just yeah. look for temperance and balance. Totally. Totally, man. I mean, it's, I, I think we're, um, we're, we're touching on something that, that I think is, is interesting. So like, you know, Ken Wilber will talk about, you know, the, the integral philosopher that we like, you know, the, the good, the true and the beautiful. And, you know, if we're going to think of what the future of humanity is like, social evolution, where's society going to go? We need to account for all three of these things. And I think we've in this past few minutes really been talking about a, a kind of a, a renaissance of values. And I think it's good. And I, I think there's more, we could talk about that if we get into kind of the, the function of, of ethics and morality as a social technology. And I want to, at least before we go, uh, talk about this idea of the true and, and one of the catastrophic risks we have not really zoomed in on, which I think we're going to have to bookmark for a later conversation in full is this this what people are now calling you know post truth right or, or ep epistemic fragmentation is one one way of thinking about it or the filter bubble world that we live in like how can we even decide together if we can't if we agree less like the, at least in the Walter Cronkite era right we 
more or less kind of agreed on whatever that narrative was in the Eisenhower years of like, you know, what was happening in the world. And now, you know, you think of like, I have an idea of what I think might be happening. You could just literally Google your own freaking idea and actually find people that will pair it you back to you. It. You're right. Yep. You're right. That paranoid conspiracy thing is totally right. And I, I think this is one of the, one of the downsides of decentralization too much. You know, it's like, how do we, how do we find that balance? And there is a, I think there are balance. even the, even the human body here has a balance. Like to, to, to say like, you know, the, the immune system does not operate under the auspices of the nervous system primarily, right? It's maybe has a little bit of an influence, but the, but the adaptive immunity that the human body has is, is under its own intelligence with its own memory cells. And it's way more at a biochemical process. And you know, the brain doesn't really sort of like have to order it around our heartbeats without our brain ordering it around. So like we need some decentralization, but we also need a cohering function. You know, yes. and this this balance between the two, if we if we get too authoritarian one way, I think that carries one kind of catastrophic risk. If we get too decentralized in another way, that kind of creates this kind of multipolar Hobbesian trap race to the bottom. And if you throw in ever increasingly powerful exponential technologies available to more and more people, then you do get something that looks like, oh, we we the in we are increasing the risk that we're going to just self-destruct basically in this period of history. I, I don't know of any, I, I'm bought into the this black, conclusion. the black swans become gray swans. Yeah. Just due to their increased, increased frequency. Exactly. Cause exactly. the definition of black swan is it's, it's relatively, um, rare. infrequent, yep. rare. Yeah. Um, now, okay. So we're, we're, we're running out of time, especially for people who are trying to go to lunch or sitting at work and, and being in, enlightened or confused by us, whichever that is. Um, <laughs> but I, I see two, uh, I, I wish we had 10,000 listeners already so that we could get a feedback on what the next episode might be. Sounds yeah. like there's two good post-truth world would be one. And yep. another is the true, the beautiful and the good. Uh, and I would add to that the wisdom traditions. Yes. Um, those are all great fodder for future episodes. So I, uh, I will, uh, I'll let you think about that and we'll, we'll get offline and figure out what to do next. But before we go, what, what do you want to say about, um, what would be your final thought on moderating people's fears about the future while taking them seriously? What's, what's one what or two things that people can do to uh, embrace the future with optimism while, while recognizing that there are risks? Oh man, there's a couple, um, you know, balance, enjoying and appreciating what you have in the here and now with what you could do for, you know, the sake of mankind, humankind, the future, all that. Another one is, uh, if you are really kind of obsessed with one particular scenario, step back and realize Take a look at the, the good arguments for another collapse scenario. The other one is is if if you if you just keep coming to a conclusion of like authoritarian turnkey totalitarianism is the answer, you know, over and over again is like the only way. You should definitely question that because that carries its own apocalyptic risk. And 
vice versa. There are people that are enamored with decentralization that I think don't totally fully realize that you, you can't just like, you know, you know get rid of chop off the head right like it's if you did you would die so there's something there as well like um and maybe this is a little bit of that kind of golden mean aristotelian thinking which has been around you know from the ancient greeks uh because because in in humility we just don't know right we know that we are facing like an amazing future if we make it through this precipice and we could destroy ourselves in the meantime if we're not careful and you know like balancing all things i suppose would be kind of the way to sum that up from my point of view how about you right on. what do you want to leave people with yeah you know i should have been thinking about it uh, when i asked the question that you might turn it back on me yeah i would say i would say um don't freak out Look after your people. Look after the ones you love. Balance is great. Don't take don't take any of these apocalyptic visions too seriously. But also, um, use what uh, Jim Rutt would call the OODA loop. <laughs> <laughs> you know about the OODA loop? I do. <laughs> it's uh, uh, this guy named Boyd. Um, I really like the OODA loop, but it's it's basically just to, to get a sense of situational awareness before we make any kind of rash decision. Yes. Try to get more information and try to process that information in somewhat of a dispassionate way before you make another decision. Now, the original OODA loop was in the context of war, so you had to make a decision quickly, but at the periphery of of the command structure. So it is decentralized. Yep. What I'm what I'm saying here is is slow your is embrace your to loop, but slow it down with uh, with patience and reflection and think that you're probably going to be OK, because I think that the psychological timbre of optimism is more likely to to take us to lead us to good places than any sort of pessimism. Yes, that's a great note to end on. Yeah, it's a theme of social evolution, right? It's like. Yes, indeed. Look upwards, upwards and onwards, folks. Like that's the best we can do as an orientation. Right on. All right, bro. All right. Till next time. This was a good one. Great one. Yeah. Tune in again and to Social Evolution for more talks like this one from Max and Michael Porcelli. Later. Later.